Welcome to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. We're glad you've joined us, and we look forward to spending time again in the Word of God together. We also invite you to stay tuned at the end of today's broadcast for information about additional studies and resources. Thanks again for being with us. As we move further into the last days leading up to the return of Christ, we want to be found faithful. Among the churches written to in these early chapters of the Revelation, the church at Philadelphia truly set an example of those who were a blessing to the name and cause of Christ. We'll learn more about them today as Pastor Phil shares our study. There was the story some time ago of a young pastor who was uh, hired, called, installed, I don't know what they they call it now, but uh, he was uh, hired on to be the pastor of a church that had long since been dead. He knew it was dead, but he figured that by being faithful and teaching the Word and being real positive and upbeat, he could breathe new life into it. And so he tried his best and took maybe a year or two trying his best to teach the Word, trying to be very upbeat and positive. But you know what? The church, the members there were just dead for so long that they they were not interested in any kind of new life being pumped into them. Finally, one day on a Sunday morning, exasperated, the young pastor looked at the, the congregation and said, you know what? This church is dead. And it's about time we gave it a proper burial. Everybody come back to the church 2 o'clock this afternoon. We're going to give this church a proper burial. Well, now everybody in the church is curious as to what this young guy is going to do. And so the word went out throughout the town, and practically the whole town showed up to find out what this young pastor had in mind. And they walked into the church. Here he had an open casket in the front of the church. And he said to the congregation, he said, look, This church has been dead for a long time, and nothing I have been able to do has been able to pump any life into it. It's about time we give this church a proper burial. And every person needs to come up and pay their last respects. So each of the people got up, began to walk up to the casket, and as they looked inside, this clever pastor had placed a mirror. (laughs) So as they looked in the casket, they saw themselves. And, you know, I think that we need to look into this letter and let it be like a mirror. Where am I with the Lord right now? Now, I'm convinced, and I I don't know all of you, and I don't know all your hearts, but I'm convinced that in this room probably most, if not all, of you are really saved. I can't be sure. You've got to work that out with God on your own. However, even those of us who are truly born again, We don't need to be regenerated. We're already saved. But we need to be revived from time to time. And if there's anything we can take away from the church of Sardis is this. Sometimes even a good church can go through periods where the saints get worn out, complacent, apathetic, where they're resting on their laurels, remembering the good old days, living in the past. And that's never what God wants. He wants us to remember the past. He does not want us to live in the past. And so, let me just say this. One pastor said, every generation needs its own revival, its own reformation. I agree with that. But let me just say this. Sardis was dead. It was a church. A church is supposed to be a living organism, not a dead organization, right? Every living organism shares some common features. And I'll close with this and use it to examine your own life. Every healthy organism 
that has life is made up of healthy cells. Are you involved in some kind of a small group or cell group? Now, I'm talking to the choir. Probably the ones who really need for me to ask them that question are not here tonight. But maybe if they listen on CD or when this goes out over the radio eventually, uh, we'll nab those guys. A healthy organism is made up of healthy cells. A healthy church, which has life, is made up of healthy cell groups. I mean, just little groups that come together in various neighborhoods so that you can interact with people on a very personal level, you know, just get to know each other and and understand what's going on in each other's lives so you can pray for each other and encourage each other and keep each other accountable. That's very important when you talk about life. I have noticed the people that are getting to the point where they're getting dead spiritually, in a sense, is they have isolated themselves from the body. You cannot take a single cell out of a human body and put it by itself somewhere and expect it to live and thrive. It's going to die. We need to be connected to the body if we're going to be alive spiritually. Every healthy organism eats. Are you giving yourself enough spiritual nourishment every week? Are you in the Word? Are you coming to study so that you can hear the Word being taught? Good heavens, if many of us fed our physical man the way we feed our spiritual man, we would have been dead a long time ago. We need to eat. The physical man, when it doesn't eat, it really screams, feed me. The spiritual man, it's not that quick or that, you know, obvious. You just start noticing your heart for God begins to cool. You don't have the same passion you once had. You don't feel like going to church anymore. You don't feel like witnessing to anybody. You start getting back into TV and maybe some other things that you were delivered from. You have to eat a healthy diet if you're going to be healthy. Thirdly, all healthy organisms grow. Are you growing in your faith? I mean, there are Christians, and again, I'm talking to the choir. You precious saints are here today because you want to eat and you want to grow. There's a lot of people, some in our church. I've met many other churches that have been Christians for 20, 25 years. And honestly, they haven't been Christians for 25 years. They've been Christians for one year 25 times. They haven't grown out of the first year of their conversion. And it's because they're really not feeding themselves and being plugged into a local church. So growth. Are you growing? You may not be all you want to be, but can you look back and go, I'm not all that I once was. There there has been growth. That indicates life. And fourth, are you reproducing? All healthy organisms reproduce. Greg Laurie, one of our pastor evangelists, had said more than one occasion, evangelize or fossilize evangelize or fossilize. I mean, all healthy organisms reproduce. Are you reproducing yourself? It could be just taking time with your kids or your grandkids to make sure that they uh, have a heart for God because you're teaching them and you're exemplifying for them what it, what it means to be a true Christian on fire for God. Uh, you know, are you, are you reaching out to your neighbors? I mean, you know, it's all kinds of ways to get to know your neighbors, invite them over coffee. Uh, you know, just, just are you trying to reach out to people? Or are you hiding out, you know? Letting, putting your light under the bushel, as it were, and kind of hiding out. Look, these are the last days. We need the saints to come out, not hide out. Come out, all right? And stand up for Jesus, not in, a, in an obnoxious way, but in a very loving, the world is looking for answers. 
So many Christians are hiding out. Where are they turning to? They're turning to Islam and Hinduism, the New Age movement, or some other goofy thing. We have the answer. Let's stand up and be a light, and may God give us grace in these last days, not to go the way of so many churches, which is just dead orthodoxy, dead right. We want to have the truth that we embrace to fill us with life through the power of the Holy Spirit. And to the angel or the pastor of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, and have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet, and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, 28 miles southeast of Sardis, we come to the church of Philadelphia. Now, Philadelphia sat at the end of a long corridor, actually was a valley, that worked its way all the way through up to Philadelphia, And then the road right after the city began to rise dramatically, 2,500 feet to the central plateau or what was known as Upper Asia Minor. Because Philadelphia sat on this kind of the end of the corridor was kind of a doorway to the rest of Asia, it was called the gateway to Asia. It's a very strategic place. In fact, it was uh, on a main route of the imperial post from Rome. And because, as I said, it was like a doorway or a gateway to Asia Minor, the city became what was called a missionary center, but not like you think. It was called a missionary center to spread the Greek language and culture all throughout Asia. However, the Christians, of course, living there had a heart to reach the lost, and they made it a missionary center from which to spread the gospel. But this valley where Philadelphia sat was extremely fertile. I've never been there, but I've heard uh, people talk about it who have been. Uh, Very fertile with uh, beautiful laurel trees everywhere, all kinds of different beautiful flowers. And they say pretty much anything that you can grow can be grown there. So the city aesthetically was beautiful, but it did have a dark side. It was also called Little Athens because it had so many pagan temples in the city. It was famous for wine production, and in fact, one of the patron deities deities of the city of Philadelphia was Dionysus, who was the god of wine. So you can imagine what went on there. The city of Philadelphia was founded in 189 B.C. by a man named Humanus II, 
When he died, he was succeeded by, by his younger brother, Atalus II, who loved his older brother so much that after his older brother died and Atalus took over, he named all kinds of buildings after his older brother. He minted coins with the image of his brother on them. He talked so much about his brother that the people in the city actually began to call the city by two Greek words, phileo adelphos. Phileo was the Greek word for love. Adelphos, brother. So the city became known as Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. In 17 AD... It was completely destroyed by the same earthquake that we talked about last week that leveled Sardis. In fact, there were 10 cities uh, besides those two that were destroyed in the earthquake of 17 AD. Tiberius not only provided money to rebuild Sardis, as we saw last time, but he also provided a vast sum of money to rebuild all 12 cities. The folks of these cities were so grateful that they got together and they built a monument to him to thank him and praise him for providing the resources to rebuild these cities. Philadelphia went even a little farther. The people were so grateful that he had rebuilt their city. They actually renamed it Neo Caesarea, which means the new city of Caesar. Later, it was reverted back to Philadelphia, but for a while there, it bore the title of Caesar. The witness of Philadelphia lasted longer than any other of the Christian churches in Asia Minor. Uh, it had a Christian witness, and I think there's still a handful of Christians that live there today, but it, it had a Christian witness until the Turks conquered it in 1392, and uh, they renamed it Al-Hashir, which is Arabic for the city of God. So, as I said, I think there's a handful of Christians that still live there, but it's predominantly a Muslim city today. Now, as we have seen with several of these cities, we have no, or churches, I should say, we have no idea how they were founded, when they were founded, or by who they were founded by. Um, we don't have any information, and, and Philadelphia is the same way. We don't have anything in the New Testament, Book of Acts, or the Epistles that tells us when the church was founded in Philadelphia, who founded it. Again, it's probably safe to assume that it was started as an outreach of Paul's ministry uh, while he was in Ephesus. Uh, Philadelphia wasn't too far from Ephesus, and uh, Paul spent three years there uh, discipling people. Every day he was in the school of Tyrannus, uh, discipling people, and they were no doubt going out all over the, uh, that area, starting churches. Philadelphia was probably started as a fruit of Paul's ministry. We know that the city, the name means brotherly love or love of the brethren, and we know that this was a church that really loved the brethren. It was a church where Christians loved one another. You say, well, isn't that, shouldn't that all be obvious? Well, not all churches are filled with people that love each other, unfortunately. It's kind of a strange thing to think about, but, I mean, I've seen churches that are full of bickering and fighting and schisms, and Corinth was like that. And they're around today. But this was a church that genuinely liked one another. You know, they, were, they, were just, they liked to be around each other. I, I like being around you guys. I like the fact that as a church, we like to kind of hang out together. We like to do things together. We like to have potlucks. We like to, we enjoy each other's company. This was a church that had that going for them. But you know what? That's not enough. It's wonderful to love the brethren, but Jesus wants us to love the lost. He wants us to reach out to the lost with the gospel. And this church had a heart to do that. This church had a vision to reach the lost world around it. And so God set before them an open door. 
Now, as we come to the letter to the Church of Philadelphia, we come to the period of church history covering roughly the 18th and 19th centuries. During the 18th and 19th centuries, it was a time of great missionary movements. William Carey uh, is credited with being the father of the modern missionary movement. William Carey started off as a cobbler working in London. A cobbler was a shoemaker. And he had by his side two books that went with him everywhere he went. One was the Bible, of course. And the second one was the Journal of Captain Cook. Captain Cook was an explorer. He sailed the Pacific Ocean. He discovered the Hawaiian Islands and other things. And he wrote down this journal. And as William Carey would read us about this explorer who would, uh, who would uh, find new lands and, and encounter new people groups, as Carey began to read more and more of the scriptures how the early church went out and how and discovered new groups and new lands. He, he had became less and less passionate about the souls of shoes and more and more passionate about the souls of people. Until one day, and you know how that works, God begins in your heart with a work, He begins to burden you, things begin to build, and you can't take it any longer. You've got to do something about it. And so one day... On May 34, 1793, he walks into the little Protestant church where he attended, and he said to the pastor, could I please share a few minutes? The pastor said, fine. And so he turns to Isaiah 54, verses 2 and 3, and he reads these words. We must lengthen the cords. We must strengthen the states, the stakes. What does that mean? The cords of the tent. We've got to expand the tent. With a bigger tent, you need stronger stakes. What is he saying? He's saying, look, the church of Jesus Christ needs to expand. We're, we're just kind of hanging out right here. We need to expand it beyond our borders. I want to go to India, he said. Please send me to India so I can reach the Indian people for Christ. This shocked his church. It had been a thousand years before anybody had launched out on any kind of overseas missionary endeavor. But to their credit, they went ahead and they sent William Carey to India. And during his first 10 years there, he became fluent in 12 languages. And one of his works, translating the Bible into Sanskrit, is still used to this day. It just goes to show you that you don't have to be highly educated to serve God. You just need to be highly motivated to be an instrument that God can use. Look, we're ordinary people. But you know what? When an extraordinary God takes ordinary people in his hands, anything is possible. And that was the idea. And so you have in this letter, the Church of Philadelphia, it speaks of the age of church history beginning in the 1800s when men like William Carey went to India, Hudson Taylor went to China, D.L. Moody, you know, in America, C.H. Spurgeon in England. They were all preaching on evangelism and missionary work and they were sending out, or they were going out themselves to start new works, to take the gospel to new places. And so it an ex- was an exciting time. Not that does, that doesn't still happen today. It just seems, though, that back then the Holy Spirit was really moving in the hearts of people. And we see so many people going out. Um, a lot of missionary uh, missions organizations are hurting for people to go and money to be spent on the work of God overseas. And so uh, it wasn't like that during this period. Now, the letter of Philadelphia is one of only two letters that Jesus dictates uh, to John. 
where he has nothing critical to say. This church and then the church in Smyrna, he has no words of rebuke, no words of correction, no words of accusation. He says, now I know they weren't perfect churches. I know that there are no perfect churches. So why did the Holy Spirit, or why did the Lord Jesus Christ, I should say, why did he not find something that he could say, well, looks pretty good, but there's just one little area that we need to talk about. I don't know. I know this. Philadelphia was a church that was involved in evangelism. They were loving the lost. And as the Bible says, love covers a multitude of what? Sins. So maybe because they were so loving, so giving, wanted so badly to see people saved, that the Lord looked at their heart of love and overlooked whatever sins were there, chose not to bring them out, talk about them, and so on. Now, last week we studied the church in Sardis. And the period of church history that that talks about is the, was the period of the Reformation. From the Sardis period of church history flows two streams. One is the church of the open door. The other is the church of the closed door. The first one is Philadelphia. In verse 8, Jesus said, I have set before you an open door. Then to the church of Laodicea, he says in verse 20, I'm knocking to get in. If anyone will open the door, I will come into them and dine with them and he with me. So what we have here from the Reformation period, you have two streams that flow. You have the evangelical church, the Bible-believing church, the true church, and you have the liberal church, which is not Bible-believing, and um, although wealthy, is often bankrupt spiritually. We'll see that next week as we study the church in Laodicea. But let's pick it up again in verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy... He who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. Something very interesting here. Remember we said that every one of these letters, except this one, I should say, starts off with Jesus introducing himself, taking something from the vision that John saw of him in chapter 1. This is the only letter where the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't take something from that vision to introduce himself with, Instead, he introduces himself by using something that comes out of Isaiah 22. Now, before we go there, let me just say this. He first of all says, these things, says he, who is holy. Absolute holiness is an attribute of God alone. Absolute holiness. Now, you and I, we are called to be holy. Uh, Peter says, We are to be holy as the people of God, even as Jesus himself was holy. And that simply means, and the word is hagios in the Greek, it means to draw away from the world, to draw closer and closer to the Lord. Certainly as we do that, we become more and more like Christ. However, we'll all agree that in this life we will never reach absolute perfection or absolute holiness. Only God has the attribute of absolute holiness. That is to say that he is utterly separate from sin, His character is absolutely unblemished by moral impurities. He's unflawed. He's flawless. The Bible says God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. That's a a way of saying God is absolutely pure, morally, spiritually, 
in him is no moral imperfections, no flaws. He's absolutely perfect. He's absolutely holy. Now, when Jesus calls himself the one who is holy, right off the bat, he is claiming deity. He is saying, I am God. Only God is truly holy. I can take for myself the title of absolute holiness. He also says, but this says the one who is holy and the one who is true. The Greek is alethanos, and it's a Greek word that means genuine, authentic, real. Look, we're living in a world where very little is real, except sin and coming judgment. Several years ago, my family, we were able to go on a tour of Universal Studios, and they take you on some of these back lots where they film some of these movies, and you're driving down this street, and you see these houses, or if it's a Western set, you see the saloon, and you see different things. And it looks very real from the street. If you go around back, there's just a couple of sticks holding the thing up. It's just nothing but a front. You've been listening to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. Today's message, as well as many other studies, can be heard and downloaded free of charge from our website at daybydayradio.org. From our website, you can contact us, order resources, read Pastor Phil's blog, and also subscribe to our daily podcast. We hope you'll pay us a visit. And remember to join us for Day by Day, Monday through Friday, here on this station. Thanks again for listening, and please join us again next time as we continue to study God's Word. Until then, may the Lord richly bless you and guide your steps as you walk with Him day by day. day, by day.